Welcome to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. In this podcast, we discuss, educate and talk about industry news and hot topics, company reviews and live interviews with mining professionals and leading figures in the mining industry. Introducing your host, Rob Tyson, founder and director of Mining International. With a career covering nearly two decades, Mining International partners with new and junior miners and larger predominant players in the market. With no further ado, here is your host, Rob Tyson. Hi, it's Rob here from another episode of the Dig Deep the Mining podcast. And I've got a really exciting guest um, who I first saw in state, on stage at the Mines and Money conference in London last year. Um, and back then, I thought, I would really like this guy on the podcast. I think he would add, very, uh, add really great value um, to the audience. So um, he's the president and CEO of uh, Sprott US Holdings, um, who are uh, a company that focuses on investing in natural resources. And now I think, um, obviously, I'd rather let uh, Rick give you more in-depth detail, obviously, about, um, about his company. So with no further ado, I'd like to welcome Rick Rule. Hi, Rick. Thank you for the opportunity. No, I appreciate you. Appreciate the time taking uh, to do this. Um, first of all, I just want to kick off with um, giving uh, an overview of obviously yourself and a little bit of background of um, of who you are, especially for the people out there that listening that that may not have heard of you before. Although I imagine quite a few would have done. Um, and a little bit about obviously uh, Sprott Holdings um, and what you do within the natural resource uh, sector. And then I've got a series of questions uh, I'd like to ask you. So fire away. Uh, I'm an investor and speculator. Um, 45 years of investing and speculating actually in resource markets. Uh, I am the largest shareholder of Sprott Inc., which is a Canadian listed and domiciled investment manager focused on natural resources and precious metals. We manage or administer in excess of $10 billion, virtually all of which is in the natural resource businesses, the vast majority of which is in mining. Uh, although our primary focus is on the buy side, that is managing investor capital in the mining space, uh, within those mandates, we're active uh, on the equity side, generally in market caps below $4 billion. But we are also, we believe, the largest non-investment grade project uh, and acquisitions, mergers and acquisitions lender in the junior mining space. So we have a fairly active capital markets business, uh, albeit from a buy side perspective. Okay. And a little bit about yourself. So how did you get into the industry back way back in the in the day? Um, and have you always sort of been in the mining industry or is it or have you sort of grown into the mining industry? No, I'm a boring boy. <laughs> uh, my interest in my teens was in natural resource finance. Yeah. Uh, being American, there was no university in the United States that had a natural resource major, no natural resource finance major at that point in time. So I emigrated to Canada and attended the University of British Columbia. Uh, I had the extraordinary good fortune of coming into the natural resource business in the 1970s. Uh, and I landed accidentally, frankly, right in the middle of the biggest bull market that the resource business has ever seen. 
uh, I, I made the mistake early on of confusing that bull market with my brains. And so while the decade of the 70s was very good for me, the first part of the decade of the 80s was not so good. Uh, many young men enjoy wild parties and afterwards <laughs> suffer a severe hangover, yeah. which was certainly my circumstance. But uh, it taught me an important lesson about the cyclicality that's inherent in the natural resource business and a lesson that served both uh, me and Sprott very well in the ensuing 40 years. So I... Uh, I had the very good fortune of identifying a career that interested me when I was very young, uh, and uh, I've enjoyed it and stuck with it uh, and enjoy it, in fact, to this day. I, I like to say if work is uh, doing something that you have to do and able to sustain yourself, I've never had to work yeah. a day in my life. I enjoy coming to work, and sometimes I resent going home. It's a business that's treated me very well, and I've had a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, in the process of building this business. Yeah, obviously you mentioned that that particular challenge. Do you think that particular challenge that you had in the early eighties? I think you said that particular incident, or not particular incident, but that particular phase has has that made you how successful you are today because of because of that, or would you learn that same mistake a bit later on in life? No, I only had to make that mistake once. It was okay. fairly egregious. I. Uh, uh, I, I didn't have to declare bankruptcy, but the truth is that I remember on my 29th birthday figuring out that after having been a very wealthy young man, that I had a negative net worth. Uh, Got you. And uh, I think I learned two interesting things from that. Yeah. One is that you don't confuse a bull market with brains. Uh, the other is that this business is deeply, deeply cyclical and capital intensive. And if you are not a contrarian, you are going to be a victim. Yeah. You need to write checks when your competitors are drawing in their horns and you need to cash checks when your competitors are becoming aggressive. Sprott has for the last six years, which have been very difficult years in the junior resource equities markets, continued to invest in uh, uh, our own capabilities. And the consequence of that is that we've managed to grow through six very hard years in the resource business, where most of our competitors were either contracting or in fact dying. Uh, and uh, that is a sort of lesson that is born of my own and Eric Sprott and other people's experiences in the 70s and 80s. Uh, yeah. The, the real lesson is that you are either a contrarian or you will be a victim. That's the way the resource business works. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's with most businesses. If if the market isn't going too well, a lot of companies do contract. And probably what you should be doing is the opposite. If the market is contracting, you should be going out there more, marketing more, doing trying to do more business. It obviously is more difficult in those certain times, but you should be doing opposite to what the market is doing. That's exactly right. Both ways. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to say you do what's easy. Uh, that isn't really true. Yeah. But the truth is when everybody is competing with you on the bid, you should go on the offer. Uh, when everybody's offering up, <laughs> you yeah. should go on the bid. Now, it's in fact very difficult to do. It's easy to say. But that is nonetheless what you should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. So how's the company grown from back back in the 80s and 90s? And what kind of things have you done, um, maybe different to what your competitors are doing, um, to obviously where you are today? 
I think there are a few things that differentiate ourselves from most of our competitors. We're not a financial services supermarket. Yeah. You won't see us in esports or cannabis, except perhaps. <laughs> yeah. uh, we do resources, resources, and resources. Uh, right. We have both an institutional constituency and a retail constituency. We manage money on behalf of, uh, we believe, 200,000 retail investors worldwide. So we have the stability of capital that comes from a very broad base uh, with no gatekeepers between us and that capital. Uh, one of our uh, important lines of business is a series of exchange-traded physical precious metals trusts on the New York Stock Exchange covering gold, silver, and platinum and palladium, respectively, where we manage several billion dollars worth of physical precious metals stored at the Royal Canadian Mint uh, that is evidenced by uh, shares as opposed to physical metal. The other business that separates us from many of our competitors is, I said before, our lending business. We have been active in lending to small and micro-cap resource businesses for 25 years. Uh, and in terms of non-investment grade project finance, we see ourselves as the market leaders. Uh, we are also becoming increasingly important in providing senior secured mergers and acquisitions debt. So I would say that the industry is starting to know us, in addition to our traditional role as an equities manager, as an increasingly important lender. And that lending space has really opened up as a consequence of the Basel III banking accords. Yeah. The idea, I mean, this will make you laugh, the idea that we could have competed with the Barclays and the Deutsches of the world prior to the 2008 uh, financial collapse and the subsequent Basel III banking accords yeah. was a non-starter. But the fact that the senior project lenders worldwide, the 15 or 16 of them that used to own the project business, were legislated out of that business, uh, created a tremendous market opportunity for Sprott yeah. and has given us the ability to serve our basic constituency uh, much more fully. Yeah. So have you have you seen a big growth then in the last 10 years then, then obviously the previous 20, 30 years? Because of in that lending opportunity. Business? Yeah, because of that opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I'd say that business for us in terms of AUM is up 15 fold. Right, okay. Uh, it used to be that we would make uh, fairly small bridge or mezzanine loans because when companies went to project finance, they'd go to large project banks. The large project banks had to exit the space. So, you know, now you see the Orions, the Tauruses, the RCFs, and us yeah. in the space base that used to be JP Morgan Chase, BMO, Barclays and Deutsche. Yeah. Yeah. You touched on obviously uh cannabis and I thought I'll bring that while it's fresh in my mind. Obviously, do you see people the finance obviously financing and mining mining projects, do you see there's a reduction of that because of the obviously introduction or legalization of cannabis in obviously America and Canada? Do you see do you see mining not as an attractive investment opportunity at the moment because of because of the cannabis and is the cannabis just a a quick a quick earn a buck and then suddenly it will explode as mining well with the, long term. with the caveat that my um, personal expertise in cannabis ended four decades ago okay. <laughs> uh, uh, I can say that cannabis is attracting speculative capital, 
at the expense of the mining business. I personally believe that that's a good thing. I believe that the mining business, most of the wounds suffered in mining finance were self-inflicted. The industry was, I believe, overcapitalized. Uh, I believe that the junior industry worldwide has about 1,500 listings, and probably 1,200 of them are non-viable. So to the extent that some of the mad money that never should have been in mining uh, now has a different opportunity to lose money, uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm also delighted, frankly, that uh, so many failed junior miners have gone into the cannabis space. Yeah. Uh, I say only half-jokingly, it's lovely that uh, particularly Vancouver-based management teams are migrating from an industry where they didn't have much interest or much expertise, mining, yeah. uh, into an area, cannabis, where due diligence is conducted nightly on every street corner <laughs> and the management teams are pursuing something that they're both interested in and experienced with. Yeah. I say that only half jokingly. Yeah. I don't have uh, any financial expertise in the cannabis industry, yeah. but I have a lot of general speculative financial expertise. And I know that any parabolic rise in a speculative market is followed by a parabolic fall. In yeah. Canadian parlance, the backside of a hockey stick is just as steep as the front side. <laughs> yeah. and that will certainly happen in the cannabis yeah. space. There will be some amazing success stories that come yeah. out of it because the legalization of a very popular intoxicant uh, is a tremendous opportunity. Yeah. And it's an unknown as well. Correct. So it's unknown. So you just don't know where it's going to go. But, you know, obviously anything that goes up will always come down. But it just depends Correct. when that happens. Um, I want to go into, obviously, a little bit, a little bit more serious. Um, what do you look for in a company if you were to invest in them? Um, is there sort of any particular attributes or commonalities you're seeking in a company or project? There is, in fact. Um, in the space that we're in, which is primarily uh, small cap to micro cap, uh, value is created by people. So we have become after four decades, and when I say we, I don't necessarily mean the royal we, uh, although my own views coincide with Sprott's, but we are people oriented. We believe in Pareto's law which is the social science tag for the 80-20 rule, meaning that 20% of a population generates 80% of the utility in any particular subject. What we've learned is that if you take that 20% of the population that has generated the utility and you run that 20% through the same performance dispersal curve, it conformably aligns, which is a fancy way of saying that 20% of the 20 do 80% of the 80, yeah. or 4% of the management teams generate 65% of the value. And I believe that it works at least one more standard deviation, meaning that 1% of management teams worldwide generate probably 40 or 45% of the value creation. So we want to do business with people who we either know very well or people whom we know and love and trust know very well. In addition to doing business with people who have been successful in mining, we want to do business with people who have specific expertise in the task at hand. The fact that a manager was successful 
uh, operating a producing gold mine in Archean terrain in French-speaking Quebec uh, doesn't mean that he or she are qualified to explore for copper gold in accreted terrain, you know, 15 million year old rocks in Spanish speaking Peru. So in addition to success, we want that success to be appropriate to the task at hand. Yeah. We also don't particularly want to back managers. We want to back owners and partners. And so we want a circumstance where particularly the CEO, the major ego, if you will, in the country, <laughs> Uh, owns a stock position that is paid for, that is valued at, say, five times their salary and guaranteed bonus. We want an alignment of interest that goes to owners as opposed to managers. There's nothing wrong with managers. We want an owner to hire very good managers. But we want the interests aligned. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. The, the second thing I think yeah. is uh, – we want size at Sprott. Uh, my experience has been that everything that can go wrong with a big mine can go wrong with a small mine, but a small mine can never make you big money. Yeah. And it seems to me that small mines are, to paraphrase Jim Grant, return-free risk. So we want scale, a million ounces of gold or gold equivalent up. We I shouldn't say we, I am more willing than many of my peers uh, to take political risk in return for tier one projects. Uh, I have uh, lost money in places like California and British Columbia, allegedly tier one jurisdictions. I have made money with great people in places like Russia, Sudan, Congo. So I'm for a tier one deposit with a very good partner much more willing than many of my competitors to take political risk. I was going to say, what do you invest in? Is it a mining company? Is it a project? Or is it like the management team? And I think I'll yes. probably know that answer. It's the management <laughs> team. Um, but I mean, it, the truth is, yeah. the truth is, yes. Uh, I personally prefer public companies uh, to private companies because I want the beginnings of the pricing discussion to have already taken place in the market. In yeah. private companies, there's too often pricing expectation uh, that's difficult to negotiate. And in a public market, you may or may not disagree with the public's valuation, but you have a place to begin the discussion of the cost of capital. Yeah. Uh, you also have a way to uh, increase your position in the event of success or decrease your position in the event of failure, uh, which is, of course, useful to us. Yeah. Um, I mean, for any CEOs out there or any senior management um, of mining companies, um, how should they position themselves um, or be in the best position to acquire funding? Um, I bet I'm not necessarily saying from yourself, but how would how would you think they should position themselves in terms of trying to trying to get funding? Because obviously funding is seems to be pretty hard at the moment, but. I don't think funding is hard. I think if the project, if it's a good project, it will attract funding. That's absolutely true. Uh, I believe that the industry is overcapitalized. Uh, I believe, as I said, that probably 1,200 of the 1,500 listings, sub-billion market cap worldwide, are uh, non-viable. And the fact that they have a bid is at least prima facie evidence of the fact that the market is over rather than undercapitalized. I think that 
the capital acquisition process uh, involves the management team, first of all, identifying the constituency that's most interested in what they are trying to accomplish. London, as an example, uh, traditionally has had more expertise in and uh, capabilities in places like Eastern Europe and Africa. So a London constituency, if you were a West African explorer or developer, makes perfect sense. Uh, Canadian companies uh, traditionally have had more success and focus in the Americas. Uh, so that's, that's one place to start. Uh, certainly identifying constituencies that are segregated by the activity that you're proposing to be involved in is useful. It's, it, it doesn't make an awful lot of sense to go to the big generalist investor if you're a specialized explorer, because the generalist investor, a person who's invested in supermarkets and every other sort of thing, isn't going to regard himself or herself as having the specialized expertise required to analyze uh, exploration potential. So you would want to go to a more focused shop. I would, of course, encourage those management teams to think about Sprott first. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, there are other sources of capital uh, than ourselves. But I, I don't agree with the suggestion that the industry is underfunded. I think the industry is less overfunded than it used to be. And not surprisingly, the issuers are attracted to dumb money as opposed to smart money. Uh, and dumb money is in increasingly short supply, having been drawn off by places like crypto and cannabis and esports. Yeah. Um, and I was, this is probably more a generalistic question. What what would you say investors should look at if they were going to invest in a mining company or project? And I suppose that's probably not maybe at obviously your level, but anyone who's in the mining industry may be looking to invest. What kind of things should they be looking for in a project or a mining company or, again, obviously their management team? So probably at a lower level. Uh, large, tier, large tier two or tier one projects in the early stage. Yeah. Uh, grade matters and size matters. Uh, expertise and a track record of success and alignment are important. Timing is important too. Uh, we all uh, believe ourselves to be sort of impartial, fact-oriented observers. We believe that our mental processes are that we absorb information from all possible sources, process that information rationally, and act accordingly, which is wrong. What we in fact do is we, whether we admit it or not, uh, search for information that confirms our existing prejudices and biases. <laughs> and what's pernicious about that is that your expectation of the future is set by your experience in the immediate past. When stocks are cheap, as I would argue the best of them are now, you come to them from a mindset of having been beat up, been beat up or spanked for five or six years. Yeah. And the fact that your experience in the immediate past has been bad doesn't allow you often to take advantage of the fact that companies are empirically cheap. Similarly, uh, when markets are roaring, when they're expensive, uh, when you have made money on your mistakes, uh, you are extremely aggressive in reinvesting. Yeah. It's interesting uh, that in any market, if a stock has doubled in price, 
with no news to justify the move, the stock is precisely arithmetically half as attractive as it was before it doubled. Because you wonder why, how it got there. (laughs) The fact that it doubled makes you feel good about it. And the price action justifies the narrative that attracted you to the stock in the first place. Uh, Most people, whether they admit it or not, are narrative and feeling oriented rather than geologically or arithmetically oriented. And that's something that everyone, uh, (laughs) including this alleged sage, uh, has to deal with on a daily basis. Yeah. If if people were looking at junior miners, would they be looking at something different, looking at that as an investment differently? And what should they be looking at? Well, certainly this goes to the inherent difference between investment and speculation. Yeah. Uh, an investor in my book is looking for reasonable returns on capital employed. Uh, the speculator is looking for something very different. The speculator is beginning by praying for return of capital employed, but is looking for really quantum gains as a consequence of answering unanswered questions. Mm -hmm. The investment process, I think, has a lot to do with relative efficiency and relative value in the market, and perhaps to the old Marty Whitman discipline of identifying uh, potential peak of cycle earnings uh, at the bottom of the cycle. The exploration business, I think, is broadly mischaracterized in mining as being asset intensive. We regard it as being a knowledge business. We believe that value is added by answering a series of unanswered questions. And in the speculative process, one must look at the the unanswered question being asked uh, and whether or not one cares about the question at all based on the track record of the person who is asking the question. (laughs) Then one must look at the process by which uh, the thesis is proposed to be tested and see whether A, it will answer the question, uh, and B, whether it will answer the question efficiently, and C, whether the size of the prize associated with a yes answer is worth taking the risk at all. Yeah, uh, It's a very different process speculating in exploration as opposed to investing in, say, a Rio or a BHP or yeah. a Barrick. Yeah, I understand. Um, what's your opinion of the commodities market um, over the next few years? So, like, obviously, not uh, sort of forecasts. I mean, obviously, looking at gold, copper, some of the battery metals seen in the market market more so now. Um, is there any standouts for you? Yeah, uh, I mean, to answer the first part of the question, I think the outlook for commodities is mixed, bullish in the sense that uh, six years of a bear market has begun to show up in terms of impending supply constraints. When you price a commodity below the fully loaded cost of production, over time, over a long time, because it's a capital intensive business, the industry's ability to produce becomes constrained. And that's important because when you balance supply and demand by reducing supply, As the market firms, the industry can't increase supply to meet demand for long periods of time because it's capital intensive, which means that you get these wonderful price spikes. Uh, And we see circumstances where we think there are several commodities that are priced below the incentive price for new production or at prices where supply will be constrained as a consequence of the cannibalism of capital. We love markets like that. Yeah. Uh, while they require patience, the investment thesis has an answer that begins with when, not if. Yeah. 
we think that's important. One of the standouts to me is the uranium business. People hate uranium. And if you are a contrarian, the word hate is high praise indeed. If you look at the arithmetic around uranium, the International Energy Agency suggests that the fully loaded cost to produce a pound of uranium, note I said fully loaded, yeah. which includes prior year write downs, which the industry doesn't like to talk about, and also cost of capital, is about 60 US dollars per pound. So the industry as a whole is making the stuff for 60, and they're selling it for 27, losing $23 a pound 100 million times a year. That's becoming boring. Uh, if you look on the demand side, uh, although opinion is driven by Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, uh, and things like that, the truth is even the United States, a society which believes itself to be rich enough to choose which type of energy it wants, uranium supplies 15% of U.S. baseload generating capacity. So I would suggest to you that over the five to seven year time frame, uh, you have an either or question. Either the price of uranium goes up to the point where the industry earns its cost of capital or the lights go out. And I would ask you to ask yourself, which is the most likely scenario? Yeah. Looking backwards, three, three and a half years ago, you'll recall that the oil price had collapsed from $140 a barrel to $30 a barrel. A barrel. Yeah. The Keynesian geniuses at The Economist suggested that the price of oil was going to go down to $10 a barrel. Now, once again, um, you just need to look at the arithmetic. Uh, coincidentally, the same International Energy Agency suggested that the fully loaded cost to produce a barrel of oil on a global basis was $60. Again, adding back prior year write downs uh, and the cost of capital. So the industry was making the stuff for 60 and selling it for 30, losing 30, uh, $30 a barrel, a hundred million times a day. That is $3 billion a day in losses. Now, again, the choice at that point in time, something that seems to have eluded the economist, uh, was that the world runs on oil. And so your choice as a speculator was to say, is the oil industry going to be broke? In other words, will my car start five years from now? Or is the oil price going to go up to the market clearing price of oil? So from a commodities thesis, I prefer to ask myself questions where the answer begins with when, yeah. not if. Yeah. It's complicated though, because you need to look at both supply and demand. The world is in, depending on how you count it, the eighth or ninth year of an economic recovery. I'm not an economist, but in my experience, I would suggest that a nine-year-old recovery is rather long of tooth. Uh, and it's also arguable that this recovery is at least partially a consequence of artificially cheap money. If we had a faltering of demand as a consequence of, the, of an economic downturn or idiotic trade policies on a global basis, the fact that supply fell could be offset by demand cuts. Uh, and that would postpone my thesis, uh, perhaps for a very long period of time. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, from a, from, I, I'm a recruiter, so I'm not a technical, technical person. But with copper, for instance, 
they obviously everyone's talking about battery battery um, and electric power cars etc <laughs> but there's a short su such a short, short supply of copper across the world and it takes so long to actually build a copper mine so so long so money intensive to, to build that there's obviously predictions that they want to have electric cars by a certain day i think they they are so well off well off that but because of that, there's obviously going to be a supply and demand issue. Do you think copper then could be a good commodity in terms of investing? Or is it again about timing? Uh, I love the copper business. Uh, one of the things you see over 40 years in junior markets is that money is, is, money is raised on gold because the narrative is so, so, so strong. Yeah. And money is made <laughs> on copper. Got you. Uh, copper mining is a better business populated by more rational professionals. So the human side of the copper business is better than yeah. the human side of the gold business. I'm uh, certainly of the opinion myself that the incentive price for new copper projects, even in today's artificially cheap interest rate environment, is in the U.S. $3.50 range, substantially above the U.S. $2.75 range that copper changes hands at. My concern in the near term is that, you know, copper is alleged to have a PhD in economics. And to the extent that this synchronous economic expansion that we are alleged to have seen over the last eight years is long of tooth, that's problematic. Yeah. I would uh, also uh, suggest to you that while electric vehicles are the reason de jour that people are giving for the copper business, the most important thing is simply the ascent of man. Uh, the fact that the population is becoming more numerous, more urbanized, and wealthier. What you need to know about industrial materials is that increasing living standards among the bottom two billion people on Earth are what is important. And I think whether or not, as an example, American consumers pace of adoption of electric vehicles is interesting what's much more interesting is things like the urbanization in china and india when you and i make more money uh, we don't need more stuff we yeah. have too much stuff already but when poor people get more money uh, they might increase the quantity and quality of the food they serve their family they might upgrade their house from having a thatch roof to a metal roof. Uh, they certainly want electrification. When poor people get more money, what brings them utility is stuff. Yeah. And stuff is made from industrial materials. And so while the electric vehicle speaks to you and I, increasing living standards in emerging and frontier markets speak to it's copper. 30-some-odd years ago, Dong Xiaoping said two important things to copper. The first was that a cat didn't have to be red or white. It just had to catch mice. Right. <laughs> and also, uh, the, to be rich was glorious. And it was that circumstance, I think, alone that took copper over a couple of decades from 75 cents to $3.50. And it's that phenomenon that will take copper higher again. Not yeah. that uh, electrification of vehicles isn't important. It's just that it doesn't deserve the sole focus of the industry yeah. when the ascent of man is much more important. Yeah, I understand. Um, what, in what countries do you see 
a big growth in the resources sector. Um, obviously, you you look at many countries in South America, Africa, um, in America, and obviously Canada. Where do you see it? What countries do you see growth in the resources sector? Would you say over the X amount of years? Uh, well, certainly it'll be challenged, but the Democratic Republic of Congo, <laughs> Democratic Republic being an interesting moniker, yeah. it's just called Congo, yeah. uh, has a lot of what the world needs. Uh, if you follow the distributed power thesis, which is a fancy way of saying batteries, uh, right now, uh, cobalt is important. It's fallen in price, but it's important. And if you want to be in the cobalt business, whether you like it or not, you have to be in Congo or you have to be in Russia. Yeah. Uh, similarly, uh, in the copper business, uh, an example would be uh, Ivanhoe, Kamoa, and Kakula. While the yeah. average mine grade of copper worldwide is about half a percent, the first seven years at Kakula will be plus 7%, not half a percent, yeah. 7%. So assuming that Congo doesn't descend back into an overt civil war like 1995 or 1996, uh, I think dramatic gains will certainly take place uh, in Congo. Um, because the country has been very good to me, I think that Chile will continue to do well, although there are political trends in Chile that might cause it to lose its status uh, in my own mind as the most mining friendly country in the world. In terms of developed countries, uh, places that many of your listeners and readers would have the courage to invest, uh, I think the major economy that still stands the best chance in the resource business is Australia. Uh, capital availability, a great range of talent, including younger talent, which in most of the West uh, we're missing. And I would say that the dark horse, uh, I'm certainly heavily invested there, but the dark horse would be Russia, uh, really, really, really improving in many senses, uh, including transparency, uh, much stronger domestic capital markets than the rest of the world knows, uh, superb uh, labor force and technical skills. Uh, again, a young, educated labor force, which is missing in some other markets, and uh, tremendous exploration potential. Yeah. And is there particular commodities, would you say? In Russia? Russia? Yeah, we say in Russia. Pick one. <laughs> <laughs> Any. Okay, it's yeah, I understand. It's a yeah. you know, vast archean terrain, yeah. lots of greenstone, they, you know, everything. Okay. I mean, from diamonds to uranium to gold to copper to coal yeah. to iron, pick it. Yeah, understand. And obviously with Australia, they I, I used to live there myself. So um, obviously I, big exporters of iron ore and coal. Is there any other commodities you see that come, coming out of Australia and obviously those, those commodities still increasing? I think there's a lot of room to look for sulfide nickel deposits okay. in Australia, which are deposits that, although they're hard to find, I'm particularly attracted to. Uh, we're learning, Kirkland Lake, I think, taught us, uh, if you go deeper than 300 meters in the eastern gold fields, those Archean, <laughs> those Archean mines go deep. So certainly there's uh, lots of room still yeah. uh, in the gold industry in Australia. If the Australians uh, ever decided not to commit political suicide in the uranium business, uh, there's a lot of space there. I, it's a you know it's a wonderful country. Yeah. Met coal and you know they. I'm not going to say they uh, they own the iron space, 
But after the Pilbara, uh, any other iron district in the world, including Brazil, is sort of an afterthought. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, what challenges do you see the industry facing um, and how should they tackle them? <laughs> You'll love <That's> this. <laughs> People. Uh, in the West in particular, the last generation that was really attracted to mining was my generation in the decade of the 70s. I'm yeah. 66. If the industry is placing its future on my shoulders, they've misplaced it. Yeah. There's a tremendous, tremendous skills gap in the mining business. Our yeah. biggest challenge and our biggest opportunity will be in human resources. I, uh, I'll give you an interesting and funny anecdote. I uh, was in a conference in British Columbia about six years ago, the Association for Mineral Exploration in BC, yeah. something called the Cordier and Roundup. And there were two speeches in succession. One, uh, a speech by a, an Aboriginal or First Nations spokesperson talking about the fact that the uh, that there was a huge employment crisis among Aboriginal people in Northern Canada, uh, unemployment rates in the 80% range, including the youth. And the very next speaker was a person from the mining business talking about the fact that the average age of their labor force was 50 plus, and it was increasingly difficult to get Caucasian workers to want to work in the North from Vancouver. <laughs> and I was the speaker right after that, and I sort of jo jokingly suggested that the speakers, the two speakers so before me, have lunch. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, the whole opportunity for us in the mining business is to uh, present ourselves as an attractive option to a younger, more diverse labor force. Not because diversity is politically correct, but rather because uh, we can't afford to ignore the talent uh, offered up by non-white people uh, and by women. Uh, yeah. The industry in my time all looked like me. <laughs> and the truth is, if you look yeah. at me, you will see <laughs> that uh, I'm getting very close to being uh, past my sell-by date, which means that the entire labor force and skill force that the mining industry relies on uh, needs to be refreshed. Yeah. Do you think uh, there's an image problem in mining? Yeah. And, and, not, an, and not an attractive industry? Because uh, I, I hear that often. Yeah. I, you know, what I think will happen is that the technical challenges in mining are interesting enough uh, that we will be able to attract that talent. You and I are going to have to speak to, frankly, and attract talent that doesn't look like us. Yeah. Uh, we are going to have to speak to an Indian audience, a Chinese audience, an African audience, and a female audience. And we're going to have to create employment conditions that allow us to make a profit uh, while concurrently improving the living standards uh, of a young labor force that has different employment needs mm. than you and I have. Yeah. Uh, this isn't a huge challenge. Uh, I've looked at the success that Mark Bristow has had as an example with Randgold. If you look at Randgold's management teams uh, in frontier markets in sub-Saharan Africa, 
you will see that the expat worker uh, is no longer a requirement in the mining business as long as the management team understands that it's their job to put in place uh, an intellectual infrastructure that enfranchises local managers. Uh, The truth is that just as in the case of Northern Canada, in Sub-Saharan Africa, a a worker in Houston or Cleveland or even London might not want to go to Sierra Leone, but a highly qualified engineer in Sierra Leone whose family is there uh, is very interested in that form of employment. And it's just a challenge that we have to get ourselves to, which we will do. Yeah, no, certainly. Just want to uh, conclude, how do you see the mining industry moving forward over the next five or 10 years? Obviously, there's a lot of challenges and you've spoken about a lot of challenges, but how, what do you see the, how do you see the outlook? I think the outlook is spectacular. Um, In my experience, bear markets are the authors of bull markets, and bull markets are the authors of bear markets. And the bear market that we've just been through is the second most severe of my career. (laughs) I can't tell you when it's going to turn, but certainly day follows night. Uh, If you look particularly at the junior sector, while it's still overcapitalized, when I make fun of it, Uh, I make fun of an industry where, despite the fact that it loses truly spectacular amounts of money over the whole industry, a small subset of managers has delivered such spectacular results that it adds legitimacy and sometimes even luster. Uh, And you're in a circumstance now where you can buy the best management teams at a small premium to the worst management teams. if you look at the junior equity index, the TSXV resource index is an example, yeah. in nominal terms, it's off over 80% since 2011. In real terms, it's probably off 95% because they game the index. Yeah. Um, if you look at a long-term gold chart, uh, I recently did a U-term YouTube video where I did precisely that. The recoveries from these bear markets are spectacular index recoveries, not individual stocks, but index recoveries in the five or six or 700% range over fairly constricted periods of time, two or three years. Now, I can't say that happy days are gonna be here Friday. Uh, I can't even say that they're gonna be here in 2019. What I can tell you is that bear markets are the authors of bull markets. And we have been through a truly spectacular bear market. And I think that we should have at least an average bull market. And an average bull market in a sector that is as volatile as mining is one of the most amusing experiences financially that one can go through. Mm. So it does. So the outlook does look rosy. It's just, I suppose, a matter about matter of timing. Um, And obviously, if you knew that. You'd be a you'd be a rich and, rich person. And I think implementation. Person. You know, yeah. uh, one shouldn't use a scattergun approach, despite yeah. the fact that the market market is doing well. One should con- con- contain one's enthusiasm to co- top quality teams and top quality deposits. Yeah. No excuse because conditions are good to get stupid again. Yeah. 
Certainly. Well, really appreciate your time, Rick. Um, there's obviously a lot of content that you provided there and I uh, really thoroughly enjoyed, uh, obviously, uh, chatting to you. Um, if our audience wants to contact you um, and ask you maybe any questions, how can they go about doing that? Well, I'd like to give them an incentive to do just that because okay. your audience is mining professionals, which yep. is my favorite constituency. If your audience is interested in my special opinions, I would encourage them to have me rank and rate their natural resource portfolio. Okay. Uh, no obligation. Yeah. Uh, if you email me your portfolio, uh, because I'm an old Luddite, uh, include both the name and the symbol of the company in the text so that I can hit reply. Yeah. Uh, I will rank those companies on a one to 10 basis, one being best and respond via email. I will also endeavor to answer questions that people ask. Yeah. But I found that people are uh, more interested in their own portfolio than they are general questions uh, about the mining business or the world economy. Certainly, certainly. And your email address is? I'm sorry, uh, rrule, R-R-U-L-E, at sproutglobal.com. Yeah, and are you on any social media platforms? Or do you leave that? Oh, obviously, you mentioned YouTube. Yeah, the the easiest for me is LinkedIn yeah. uh, because it's sort of the most intuitive for an old man. <laughs> uh, Sprott US Media, uh, which I'm a frequent contributor to, uh, posts and we have, a I guess it's called a YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, but the rest of it, I'm not particularly active on. I understand. Yeah. So obviously, I encourage our listeners to uh, look at some of those YouTube videos, and uh, I'm sure there's a great wealth of content there for our, for our listeners. Um, alternatively, you can email myself, and I can pass those uh, messages on to, uh, to Rick. My email address is rob at mining-international.org. Well, thank, thank you again, Rick. Really appreciate your time. Hope you enjoyed the, this podcast, um, and I, because I, obviously I certainly did. Um, until next time, happy mining. Thanks for listening to Dig Deep, the mining podcast. If there are any topics you want discussed or questions you want to ask any guests, then you can email us at rob at mining-international.org or you can follow Rob and Mining International on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube for more content and to have your questions answered. Until next time, happy mining.